Welcome to Otaku Beef. I'm Zid Raw. It is Monday, my time, and usually I do my Game of Thrones recap reflection Sunday night directly after the show. But that episode was so intense, I almost needed some time to ruminate, some time to think, some time to figure out how do I actually feel about what happened with this show. It was the mid, I guess it's a mid-season finale, simply because there's only going to be seven episodes for the end of this, and uh, that was episode four, which is the midpoint, right in the smack dab in the center, and it definitely delivered. Now, what's so interesting about the episode is that everyone is kind of like losing their minds because that episode was 46 minutes long. And because they are only having seven episodes, they proclaimed that they were going to make each episode basically an hour, an hour real time, like the length of a movie. You know what I mean? So when everybody starts seeing that the episode, that this episode tonight was only 46 minutes, they're like, hey, where's my last 15 minutes of the show? Why did it fade to black right there? And I'm sure some people were waiting for it in like an after credit sequence or something like that. But I feel like this episode was, um, this episode was bigger than that. This episode was the episode of Game of Thrones. I mean, we're just, we're, we're, we're we're in, we're in the, 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 the main dessert, uh, course of the show where everything that we wanted all the stuff that we were hoping to see is finally happening and they're giving it to us all at once. So the payoffs, the payoffs, the payoffs are just, they're glorious. Everything, whether it's big or small, just kind of kept happening. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to talk about this, get my own feelings and thoughts and catharsis out. I'm going to do a spoiler filled talk for this game of Thrones season seven, episode four. Um, what was it even called? I don't remember the name of the episode this time. I just remember it was spectacular. Let's just kind of jump into it because what's most immediately on my mind is the reunions, the character reunions that we've kind of been waiting to see. So one of the first ones that occurred happened after Jon Snow walks Daenerys through the cave, which we're going to talk about directly after this, where Theon is pushing the boat over some water. He is still alive, sadly, and he's come back to Dragonstone with some other great joys. He's come back to Dragonstone with some other great joys. And he's trying to find, um, well, I don't know what he's trying to find. He's just there. He's telling them what happened. They're like, what happened to your sister? He's like, oh, uh, my uncle has a, and as soon as he gets there, John spots him. John is standing on the beach. This is a big moment for a lot of reasons. John heard tale of what Theon did. John felt guilty for so many years that he wasn't the one who was able to be with Rob when Rob was off fighting battles. John was going to abandon the Night's Watch 
to go be by Rob's side and fight with him because he felt that that was the honorable thing to do. He was going to disobey his, his, his sworn oath to the Night's Watch. In order, he was going to disobey his sworn oath to the Night's Watch in order to uphold loyalty to his family, to Rob, to his brother. And so I'm sure when he saw and heard all the things that happened, like he thought that Bran was dead, he thought that Rickon was dead, he thought all this stuff was happening because of Theon, I'm sure he felt just the guilt. Like he could have been there to help, he could have been there to save them, he could have been there to um, to maybe stop Theon. Maybe he could have been the one to go talk to the Greyjoy, to go and try to get the ships, but sadly no. So when he sees Theon there, all of that is bubbling over inside of his mind. I'm 100% sure. He took Theon, literally just grabbed him. And what's anyone going to say? One, I'm sure a lot of people didn't even know that he had history with Theon like that. They didn't know the backstory, but we knew. And this is what's so great about the storytelling, is because it's a small moment that could potentially be a big moment. What if John had just decided to say, fuck honorable, fuck anything real, and just killed him right then? That would have been a weird change to his character, and we would have been we would have felt a kind of way about it. But the fact that we he doesn't, and we know that he could, speaks everything. One of the reasons why it's so just fulfilling to see John and Tyrion and Daenerys where they are together is because those were the three characters that were the most stepped on despite the fact that they have a lot going for them. They're all very smart. They're all very talented. They're all very passionate. They all love very deeply and try very hard and they're trying to get acceptance in a lot of ways, especially John and Tyrion. And they just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. But through all the perseverance and then all the hope and then all the pushing through, they finally are at a place where not only, not only are they, um, not only are they respected, but they're admired, they're revered. That is what's so amazing about these moments. So seeing them in charge and seeing them being able to kind of like, I don't know, like, uh, kind of make the decisions is very satisfying for a viewer, especially if as a viewer, you've uh, put your, uh, you've put your hopes and you've put your, I guess your dreams or your betting on these specific characters. Whom do you relate to the most? Who's your relatable character the most? And for the most of, for most of us, it's Tyrion, Danny, and John, And that's what makes it work. So, when John grabs Theon by the scruff and says, because you saved Sansa for what you did for her, saving her from Ramsay Bolt, that's the only reason that you're not dead or that I'm not killing you. That's real. Because we know, for our sakes, if that was us, we don't know if we would have done the same thing, but John is the better version of us. And so he does the honorable thing even when the dishonorable thing wouldn't even be that dishonorable. But honor to him means more 
than revenge. So, another fantastic reunion was Arya finally getting back to Winterfell. We open with this amazing shot where she's like sitting on the hill on her horse, just like at the top. Just sitting there and just looking and admiring the view of the Winterfell castle. And that's what's so amazing about, you know, the series lately is that they're not, they're not lingering. They're not just sitting around waiting for her to get to the castle. There's no more interruptions. There's no more, oh, she's about to make it, but then she doesn't. No, she goes right up to the castle gate, walks up, and then the guards give her the same song and dance. Now, in the past, Arya wouldn't have been able to do anything, but she's one of the faceless now. Arya says, look, instead of getting hot-headed, she literally says, I'm getting in this castle either way. So if I am who I say I am, and you kick me out, Sansa's gonna be pissed. What you should probably do is just let me in, go get her, and she can confirm or deny that I am who I say I am. And they literally just say no, sit right here. Like, I guess all we can do, they don't believe her. And I'm not even going to say, well, why shouldn't they? Because I have no sympathy for them. I have no sympathy for that. For people who are just saying no as a default. Ask a question. Use your fucking head. That's one of those things that we just assume people are dense. And I'm sure a lot of them are. But come on, man. Arya has this amazing fight scene with Brienne and it's just so interesting to see her finally being a a a, a competent but not just competent but very well put together swordswoman seeing Arya actually um, using the skills that she learned not only from the faceless men but from her dancing master um, it was very, very satisfying. And she says she wants to train with Brienne because Brienne beat the Hound. And yeah, Brienne is the one who defeated the Hound, even though the Hound is still out there. She is the one who subdued him and took him down, which I thought was really cool. I like that scene where she did it because that makes sense. That was something new that they added to the show which wasn't in the books which could definitely have happened because Brienne is one of the strongest warriors in the Seven Kingdoms and so we have her just kind of like dominating Podrick Payne and Podrick he's doing his best but he's frustrated but Arya just steps up and she's just like never here's a tip never fight anybody like her in the first place and everyone's like oh snap so then Arya says, I want to train. And she pulls out Needle and she's like, that sword is too thin. And Arya's like, that's cool. And what she did is that she realistically fought the way someone her size would fight if they were trying to win. She danced around her. She would whip the sword and hit her like on little delicate places, smack her in the hand, hit her on the side, like aim it at her at her neck she had the uh, valyrian steel dagger now which is probably going to come in useful when the white walkers show up it's a 
very satisfying fight. And even though Brienne ended up kicking her and knocking her back, Arya smiled and we smiled because we know that our warriors are together. It's these reunions. And then when Arya meets Bran, and then Bran, he's gone complete, just like otherworldly, only talking in metaphors, only talking in broken fragments, seeing things that have happened but will happen almost all at once. He's really playing up that three-eyed raven part. And what's so brilliant about it is that he lets us know things in the past that only those characters can know, which informs his character to us. So he'll say something like, oh, it wasn't on her list. And we're like, oh shit, he knew, he knew she's got a list. Oh, Brand, Brand the Broken, y'all. And then he's like, he's like, yeah, Three-Eyed Raven, bitch. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, really great. And what's amazing is there's this moment where one little finger is meeting with Brand, saying this is the dagger that basically did that to you. I want you to have it. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, who is letting Littlefinger in this, in this dude's room? Why is he still there? What's even going to happen? Littlefinger is basically done. He wanted to be a king. He can't be. He wanted to be in charge. He won't be. He's just sort of in the way. So seeing him with Bran like this, we're just like, man, why are you in Bran's room? Get the out of there. You know what I'm saying? So now... He says all this stuff, and he tries to swing powers, but Bran, he sees all, and to some extent, he knows all. And when Littlefinger says that whole thing about chaos, and Bran says, chaos is a ladder, that's a conversation Littlefinger had with Varys way back when, and I had to look that up myself. No one was that, was privy to that conversation. Least of all, a young boy who had broken legs at the time was living thousands of miles away. That is a cool moment. And that's a moment where it's like, yeah, Littlefinger, you gotta chill out. You better relax. You better go back to the Ari because you can't just climb over people who are doing the right thing and dominating for once. So I thought that was fucking amazing. Um, I really liked how the siblings are reacting to one another. I like the moment where Arya was underneath the keep and Sansa knew that's where she was. And they saw Ned's statue and the face looked nothing like him. And she's like, yeah, they really should have got somebody who knew what he looked like in order to make this statue. It's these reunions, man. It's these moments. It was brilliance that's making this song, this show, Song of Ice and Fire, so amazing, right? It's almost like there's a beauty to putting these type of things together. When I think about how much better Game of Thrones is than the majority of other television shows, it's because the show has patience to craft a story instead of simply trying to garner or, or pull an emotion from the audience. And yeah, you pull emotions from the audience, but not because of the actions. It's not the dragon fights. It's not the battles. It's, it's, it's the, not even really the intrigue. It's more like the association of us, the audience, to the characters. I, I was having this discussion with people at, the, uh, at, at where I work. 
And after the first episode came out, they were like, how would you rate the episode? One to ten. Ten being the best, one being the worst. They were all like, it's a six. It's a five. It's a seven. You know, it introduced us to the characters. It got things started. It picked up where it left off. I said it was a 10. The first episode of this season was a 10. Because I actually care about character development. There's power in the quiet moments. You can't... People only understand the fire. But they don't really understand the time and effort it took someone to strike the flint against the uh, against the log to make the flame like the flint against the steel to make the flame that's that's where the 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 that's where the the meat of the hamburger is like they're only concerned with ketchup and the bacon and the cheese but you got to get the cook right that's what game of thrones does so fucking well the simple fact that all of these characters are so well are so well written and so well etched into our minds and our memory that we legitimately care if certain characters could die and that's what makes the battle scene so great so obviously the battle scene that's the that's the piece de resistance that everybody wants to kind of get into and i kind of really really liked it I feel like it was just so well constructed and so well orchestrated and it was so patient with how it went. What was cool about the battle scene is the fact that it was an unanticipated battle scene. The battle scene was first just almost like a congratulatory thing for Jamie and for... um, Sam's dad, uh, Randall Tarley, talking about, yes, we did it. We, uh, we got all the gold inside King's Landing, and uh, Cersei's now going to pay the Iron Bank back, which is an interesting concept. And she's more efficient and everything, and more ruthless than Tywin Lannister, and they're going to love her. And they're pumping Cersei up and all this stuff, which I still don't buy. Sorry, never going to buy it. Anyway, they're merely discussing the battle being over. And the truth of things. And when Randall Taller steps away and Braun and um, Jamie, they're talking with Dickon, who is Sam's younger brother. We get another instance of a good person or a good character. Well, no, a good person because the characterization is not really what I'm discussing. I'm really talking about how who they are as people and how could we potentially relate to them. And Dickon comes across as being a good person. He, he says, yeah, like, I knew some of those guys that I had to, that I had to fight over at Highgarden. I trained with some of them. They're good people. I really have an, an affection for them. And Jamie was like, yeah. Now, Jamie put on his political hat and was like, well, you know, they turn enemy when they went against the crown. And that's kind of... That's kind of what happens when uh, when the Game of Thrones is played. You know, that's basically what he said. But it still doesn't mean you have to enjoy it, basically. And 
you know, that's a truth of the matter. And what's so cool about it is that the show doesn't show us the moment of them being evil. It shows us the moment of them being good before the dream. And then there's the setup. The quiet moment, the conversation, the relatable conversation, the moment where we see them as human beings and not just Lannisters and gold and red caves. And then all of a sudden it's quiet. And then they recognize the sounds in the distance. And it's horsemen. And I'm thinking, holy shit, the Dothraki are coming. The Dothraki are coming. But then the dragon flies overhead and it's, yeah, this is it. Danny made her decision. She's not going to come at the castle and melt the people. Instead, she's just going to go at the armies. And people understand when a, uh, the army is taking out on a military campaign. They don't understand if you blaze the town down. And she rains down dragon fire in the best possible fashion. And there's some good images of uh, Drogon sitting on her shoulder in season one when he first comes out of the egg. And now they paired that with her riding Drogon through the air. Well, I'm still worried about like bugs and stuff getting in her teeth and how is she sitting up there? And is there a saddle? Anyway, they didn't answer that question. This TV, they didn't need to. But having Drogon literally skim across the sky and blaze through the Lannister army was so brilliant. It was so well done. These are the best dragons that we've ever seen on film. These are the most believable. These are the most terrifying. These are the most intense when it comes to the fantasy genre we've ever seen visually. We've read some good stories with dragons in them. This is the best one that's ever been realized. So I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this particular moment. As everybody did. I was speechless. I was silent. Little bits and pieces of it were great. You got to see some cool hero moments from our favorite characters. You got to see Jamie really being a leader and a captain and a general and urging these armies on, but not just standing on the sideline. You got to see Braun doing shit. You got to see Jamie with one hand taking people out with his left hand. The training is actually working. The training that he's been doing with Braun, at least on the TV show. Um, great stuff. Now, what no one's really mentioned is how Danny basically burned all the food stores. All the grains and the supplies that the armies had, that's what she primarily was targeting with uh, Drogon. I don't know how she works that up. Must be some sort of telekinetic uh, association she has with the dragons, just like Jon has with the wolf, with Ghost. And yeah, she flew over and burned down all of the caravans and the money and the, 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 the stuff that they had, even though the gold is already in King's Landing because Randall Tarley made sure to tell us that Danny destroyed the army's means of supply. So doesn't matter who survived, they got him. And then seeing the Dothraki horde coming over the hills, fucking standing up on the horses like freaking Genghis Khan and his Mongol horde firing bows and arrows was some of the most brilliant shit I've seen on television because what they did is the subtext of real of realism inside the the fancy world that's why it works because they act as if real people have acted before in this fantasy setting 
gotta know how this works. You gotta know why this works, and that's why we love Game of Thrones. Because whether we know it or not, Game of Thrones is hitting us in the subconscious. It's hitting us in our historical brainstem. So fucking brilliant. Now, there was that moment where Bronn, who's a character that we love, even though he's an asshole, but he's a nice asshole, he he goes after the, the scorpion, which I guess it's called, to try to take out the dragon. And the moment, he's having a hero moment. He's going after Goliath, basically. And he's loading it. It cuts to him moving the thing. It cuts to like all these little pieces, the fire blazing all around him. And he takes that first shot, misses, sets up the second shot, nails it. Hits the dragon in the shoulder. The dragon spins out of control. He goes down. And then it caps it off with the dragon on the ground. Tyrion, watching the battle, sees Jamie, And then he says, don't do it. And then Jamie sits there and he's like, don't fucking do it. And then Jamie fucking charges to try to take out Danny. And Tyrion is like, you idiot. And Jamie has... After the blaze of the brilliance of discussing the freaking dragon fights, the mood, the setting, the tempo and temperament, which is obviously some of the best things that I've really seen on in cinema, period. I just like the fact that they're really going for it. This really reminds me of Breaking Bad's final couple of seasons where they were like, okay, we now have the buy-in and uh, from the public and we also have the funds behind us the people behind us let's see what we can really do in terms of filmography so that's kind of what's going on right now with GOT is that they're not just putting up anything ordinary they're not doing any ordinary ish they're freaking really going for it in terms of Let's put the camera in interesting locations. Let's get these wide tracking shots. Let's show the, dev- the devastation from the most dramatic possible angles that we can think of. And it worked. It worked because they brought in talented filmmakers and talented storytellers who, despite what they've done in the past, really understand why the things they're creating works. I believe the person who directed this last episode, he directs It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And the moments where it starts with the marching soldiers for the Lannisters, the camera's placed on the ground and the the soldiers are marching in the distance. You get a very in-focus shot of the ground and the the flowers and the leaves in high resolution and out of focus is the march the marching string of the soldiers it's very novel-esque and how the highlight is on the importance of the unimportant leading to the slightly more important leading to the even bigger questions then leading to the characters then leading to the impact very gradual build-up with extreme payoff of the dragon flying overhead and scorching. It's just brilliant filmography that I, for one, personally really appreciated. And 
I want to see more of. It's just amazing. This is some of the best stuff ever. And what's so great is that we're getting seven perfectly put out episodes. And then we're going to have a long break. And then we're going to get the finale. I was under the impression it was going to be like this. Then someone talked me out of it and said, no, 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 this is the last ep- This is the last season. I'm so glad it's not the last season because I feel like it's going to be the clash of the kings, the clash of who's going to own the locations, followed by the fight of humans against the White Walkers, which is what we really need. And they're up there chilling until next season where they're going to be all White Walkers, all abounds. So... I'm 100% loving how things are going right now. And now that we've kind of talked about the big moments, I want to talk about that one really brilliant quiet moment between John and Danny. So the moment is that before John starts mining for the obsidian in the caves, he's like, he takes Danny and he's like, look, I want to show you this before we start mining. And I'm thinking he's just gonna show her the beautifulness of the caves, which is the first kind of like red herring, which is why it kind of works. But it's not just that. John says, I want you to see this. And he takes her to a cave where there's some cave drawings, some etchings and some hieroglyphics from the, 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 the children, the first children. And what it shows is his point where the children show that they show that they've been fighting against the white walkers in the past it shows them and humans and etchings of white walkers and the blue eyes are ingrained into and the blue eyes are ingrained into the cave walls it's just a brilliant moment very well done But let's talk about John and Danny's relationship, potential relationship, possibly true relationship. So if you are a fan of fan art, if you're a fan of fan fiction, you know there have been tons of, I guess, shipping. And yes, this is continued spoilers for Game of Thrones, and I'm going to throw in some spoilers for Game of Thrones theories. So if you don't want to hear any theories for Game of Thrones that have been thrown out there, you can skip this part too. Um, five, four, tres, dos, uno. So the theory is John's lineage. When Ned Stark talks about where John, how John Storm was born, John Snow was born. Caitlin is under the impression that he's Ned's bastard, and that's what John. Uh, that's that's kind of the the notion that Ned told everyone. He went off to war, came home with the baby, and when Caitlin said, who's the mother of this? Ned said, he is my blood. He didn't say he is my son, he said he is my blood. The theory is that when Liana was quote unquote kidnapped by, um, uh, is it Rhaegar Targaryen? She wasn't really kidnapped. She was eloping, escaping because she was in love with him. And John is really Ned's nephew. So that's the theory that John is of noble birth and he's actually John Targaryen. 
and not Jon Snow at all. Even though him being a bastard has really informed his character in, in some pretty important ways. So, since Rhaegar was technically Danny's sister, uh, brother, big brother, she would be then Jon's aunt. But that doesn't stop the shipping where they're like, well, Targaryen's always married brother to sister. So people are saying, hey, the only person who can match Daenerys is Jon. So Jon and Daenerys should be together. And then we have this wonderful scene of them in the cave. And you're like, well, they kind of have a nice back and forth where it's not just a mutual admiration and respect. Maybe there's a potential like romance or a potential chemistry between the two. Who knows? This is a tough one to put your finger upon because we don't have any canon to go off of. We haven't gotten that far in the books. I don't know if we ever will, but would Don, would John be together with Daenerys Targaryen? Or are we going to find out that he's going to realize that he is John Targaryen, even though that theory is not confirmed? And since he is John Targaryen, he and Danny are going to realize that they're family. And she's going to rule the Iron Throne, and John will be king in the north, another Targaryen in the north. Like, John was meant to rule the same way that Danny was meant to rule, just in a different way. Very interesting. And the fun part is, them in the cave and them being close, people are like, I don't know, maybe. But they didn't go that route. John's not even focused on that. John was like, she's a very pretty girl. She's a very beautiful woman, but there's no time for romance. This isn't about romance. And then the jokes were like, remember the last time you were in the cave with a, with a girl, John? <laughs> Him and, and Ygritte, Ygritte, whose name, I guess that's how you pronounce it. But it was just a really cool moment. And the beautifulness of the Obsidian Field Caves. It was a very fantasy moment where reality plus five is kind of how I describe it, the low, the low fantasy. Um, it's not like Brandon Sanderson's books, which I think I'm going to talk about here next, but that was one of the moments that really encapsulates why I love this show. Is just it, it knows how to give you what you want, but not too much. So Game of Thrones is killing it this season. I'm having so much fun watching it. It's probably the best show I've seen in so long, especially this season and last season, but this one really, it's just giving us the full payoff for everything that we've been wanting to see for so many freaking years. And if you've been reading the books since their inception, I'm talking about 1990, like eight and stuff. So yeah, I can't wait for next week's episode. I want to see more Tyrion. I want to hear him talk more. I want to see what happened to Jamie. Is he safe? We don't really know. And I want to see Arya meet Jon. Peace.